Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Found in Translation. My name is Daniel Adegbison. My name is Uche Azejefor. And today we're going to be talking about the history of Black August, tapping into your revolutionary potential, and connecting Black August to a larger Black internationalist, pan-Africanist vision for Black liberation. We're excited for you all to listen to this conversation. There's a couple jokes, and there's a lot of insightful thoughts that Daniel and I shared. So stay tuned. Um, I'm vaguely familiar with it. What do you What do you know so far? Like, what do you What's your knowledge base of it? I think I understand that Black August is um, it's time period to be intentional about mm-hmm. um, the state of Black liberation practice um, in the African diaspora. Um, it's a time for people engaged in liberation activity to be very mindful of the steps that they're taking, um, just being very conscious of, um, yeah, like everything that you're doing on a personal level Mm -hmm. um, to advance our mission. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know like a few tenets of that are like eating right, Mm -hmm. um, training, um, and studying. I know there's a fast associated with it, um, Mm -hmm. fasting on a daily basis. Um, but it's like, I believe you explained it to me as like, it's almost like, it's like truly like kind of a spiritual practice or mm. it's very like comparable to like Eid or Ramadan. Mm, yeah. I like, I like that comparison. It makes it feel so like so much bigger than like so much bigger than perhaps a tradition, but more so like a genuine intentional practice rooted in some form of like a achieving a higher self, um, but I can give you, like, the background of Black August for all for all. So you can't really talk about Black August without talking about George Jackson. If you don't know who George Jackson is, George Jackson was approximately 19 years old uh, when he was convicted of allegedly, <laughs> allegedly, um, robbing a gas station and stealing $70, which if he did, like, you know, ask yourself the question why he stole $70, right? Um But he pleaded guilty because he did have other experience committing very, very, very petty crimes. Um, And he was giving the super arbitrary sentence of one to life. So he spent 11 years in prison. He was put in prison when he was 19, given the sentence of one to life. And with of that one to life sentence, he spent 11 years in prison with seven of those years in solitary confinement, which I can only imagine, you know, I just feel like solitary confinement is torture yeah it's completely i think prisons are torture but solitary confinement is like the ultimate ultimate like torture um 
But while he was in prison, George Jackson was essentially uh, radicalized by a fellow inmate named W.L. Nelson, Nolan, excuse me, W.L. Nolan. Um, and he began reading the works of Marx, Lenin, and Mao. He just got super radicalized thinking about like communist politics, socialist politics, really deconstructing third worldism, like really getting at the very, very heady stuff, right? And this is all, you know, prior to this, he had no revolutionary thought like he had no black liberationist thought and this is at a time where a lot of people are having like very very big conversations about the vietnam war about black liberation movement so on and so forth um but yeah he while he was in prison because of him getting so radicalized he joined the black panther party as a field marshal field marshal um and was in conversation with other black liberation leaders um as can be seen in his book and solid that brother where he kind of writes letters to Angela Davis, Asada Shakur, so many people in the Black Liberation Movement at the time. Though, unfortunately, <laughs> on August 21st, 1971, George Jackson was assassinated by a prison guard during a supposed or alleged rebellion where six inmates were attempting to escape from the prison. Um, and the reason I tell you about George Jackson is because George Jackson went into prison a regular ass nigga, you know, like a very normal guy. Um, and by the time he was assassinated, he had been radicalized to the point of like no return. You know what I mean? And I think what Black August is supposed to get at is specifically, I'm going to talk more about why we're celebrating Black, um, Black August with George Jackson, but Black August is essentially supposed to be an opportunity for you to tap into the revolutionary potential that George Jackson kind of did, right? There's something... I don't want to say magical because I don't want to make prison seem magical, but there's something happened as a result of him being in prison, right? Like him essentially being exterminated by the state in a sense for committing or allegedly committing a petty ass crime. Something happened to him in there where he was just like, like everything just kind of clicked. You know what I mean? Um, And yeah, so Black August is essentially just about us unlocking that revolutionary potential in us all. Um, and it kind of became a practice uh, as a result of a bunch of other things that happened, like, in August, like, for the black community. I mean, like, most notably, I feel like August is kind of just a special month for black people. Um, the Watts Uprising in L.A., August 11th, ni- August 11th to the 16th, on uh, 1965. The Haitian Revolution, I mean, the the revolution of all revolutions, right? August 22nd, that began August 22nd, 1971. The March on Washington, that began August 28th. And then some amazing birthdays of our sister, Marsha P. Johnson, who was killed, unfortunately, but was born August 24th. Marcus Garvey, August 17th. Fred Hampton, August 30th. And James Baldwin, August 2nd. And these are just a few to name. But I think I'm saying all this to say that August is just a very, very special month. And so it just kind of made sense for all of these things to be celebrated or to be honored during this month. Um, The first Black August took place in 1979, eight years after George Jackson was killed, uh, by the Black Guerrilla family in San Quentin prison. And what they essentially did was they all put on Black wristbands and They'd, beginning beginning of August to the end of August, they would fast from sunup to sundown. They would read daily. They wouldn't watch TV. They would be very mindful about the food they ate when they did break their fast. They trained. They worked out. They exercised. Um, 
And this was all in the spirit of tapping into that revolutionary potential that George Jackson kind of did. Um, yeah. I just want to give you that yeah. little rundown of what George, what Black August is. Because I feel like when we talk about it, it's kind of like, it. you were right. Like, everything you said was correct. But it's like, there's a bigger history or like a, a more localized history that comes along with Black August. Thank you for the context. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, it's interesting because I feel like not a lot of people were talking about Black August a couple years ago. This has been this has been a practice for Black liberation, like Black liberation is Black freedom fighters for, since 1979. But it's 2022, and like I'm just now seeing, like in the past two three years, I'm just now seeing a consistent practice of like or conversation around what Black August is, how do you practice it. Um, I had a friend that, like, really did fast from sunup to sundown. Um, and I forgot to even mention that I think what was so beautiful about that time was, uh, or specifically the, the fasting aspect of Black August was after, like, at the end of the month when they broke their fast, like, they would have a feast. You know, like, they would come together, eat together, uh, just be in community with one another, just to show how much they love each other um, and how much, like, this movement is rooted so much in fighting, so much in reading, so much in getting your knowledge up so that you know what you're talking about when you're organizing, but also, like, love, you know, and carefulness. So, yeah. <laughs> what are your thoughts? The thing about how you mentioned that it's, like, you're just, like, you're seeing like this resurgence of it um, coming into like the cultural zeitgeist, like within the past like two or three years, um, and before then, like before then, what was it like? I don't know. I don't think I think Black Caucus was just something that wasn't really mentioned. Um, I learned about it through like being in a freedom school, like being like a participant in a freedom school, like being on the board of a freedom school. Um, so it's just kind of one of those things that come up. Um, but before then, Black August was just kind of... I'm assuming, I'm assuming that in the more intentional uh, prison abolitionist, Black revolutionary spaces maybe was practiced, right? But Or continuously practiced in the past like decade or so, but... I didn't really see much, um, or I at least haven't heard much. And maybe that's just me not being in the mix, you know? I don't want to say that it wasn't practice. Yeah. yeah. It kind of brings up, like, um, like, a thought of, like, what this idea of, like, okay, like, what? It's, like, a question of, like, how much is out there versus, like, how much, like, we're exposed to and, like, how much information that, like, we have to actually find. Mm. Um, this is, like, my first year, like, knowing anything about Black August, anything mm-hmm. about the words Black August. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like, okay, like, yeah, this is something that it's like, you almost have to, I don't want to say dig for it, but it's like, you almost have to kind of get to a certain place before, like, these words and, like, yeah. this starts kind of appearing, like, in front of you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Before, like, it has a context. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I could tell you about Black August. I think that there's, like, there's definitely a certain knowledge that you already have to have about these movements these people the meaning behind all of this before you really are 
confronted with like, oh, Black August is something yeah. that I could be celebrating, you know? Just a certain worldview, I feel like, yeah. has to be had. Uh, I know we were talking about this before, mm-hmm. but um, it feels like it's... I feel like this is kind of kind of displays like the way that like um, political movements were suppressed like um, mm. in like the sixties and seventies, yeah, just like the mid <laughs> the mid nineteen hundreds, mid to late nineteen hundreds, um, and I feel like the more that I'm learning and the more that like I'm trying to widen like my historical and like mm-hmm. theoretical knowledge mm-hmm. of. The conditions that we're in it's yeah. like wow there was active suppression here it wasn't yeah. just that this died it wasn't just <laughs> that there was a cultural like yeah. uh disengagement from it but no this was like a genuine like attack yeah. on individuals and groups that were making strides towards revolution. our yeah <laughs> revolution for real like, yeah. um i think that's great that you bring that up because so much of the conversation around black liberation today is like oh we don't have any leaders you know we don't who's leading the movement there are no figureheads and it's like ideally there shouldn't be any figureheads right there should be a dispersed movement with because if you have figureheads you can kill the figureheads right like they kill mlk like they kill malcolm x like they you know what i mean so it's like that's yeah (laughs) um but with that i think specifically specifically understanding that a whole generation of black freedom fighters, black revolutionaries were either put in prison or killed. Like, and to this day, some of them are still in prison. Mumia Abdul-Jamal, who was on death row until what, like 10 years ago, 15 years ago? You know, a whole generation. Asada Shakur, who, for real, we were just talking about this before we started recording, but the underground really be underground. Like, she's really off the, like, off off the radar. Like, you're not going to find it. (laughs) And just understanding that that whole generation of people who were thinking like this, who had, who were organizing, who had such radical imaginations, like, uncontrollable imaginations about a future that could be created for all black people across the world, all black, like a pan-Africans, black internationalist kind of movement, they were all like wiped out. You know, America isn't a place that you think of having political prisoners and yet there's so many, and there are so many, there's so many that have died in prison, you know? I would even argue George Jackson is a political prisoner. You know what I mean? I think that he was killed because it was political his political awareness. I don't think that if, I don't think that he wouldn't have been killed. I think that he would not have been killed if he had if he did not have the knowledge that he had. I know before we were talking a little bit about um, how twenty twenty kind of like reshaped like um, the revolutionary landscape. Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel like people are like um, more open to like ideas that are kind of like outside of the status quo? Yeah, I think because we talked about how Black August kind of made a slight research, like reoccurrence in the main. I want to. I don't want to say mainstream, but like yeah. the the margins of the mainstream. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, I feel like that's because that's when I was really starting to learn more and more about Black August. I just kind of heard of it before then, 
Um, but 2020, and as a result of the George Floyd protests, Breonna Taylor protests, uh, just everything that was going I mean, COVID, you know, only thing there was to do for real was was go to the protests. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think as a result of that, that kind of pushed people to cling to more radical ideas. And Black Aukus is very radical by nature. You know, it's you saying you need to... You need to you need to put your head in the book so that when it's time to fight, you know what you're talking about. You know, like that's very that's very radical, right? Political education is super radical, um, and twenty summer twenty twenty specifically uh, definitely jump started that, um, as can be seen with like the defund police movement, ab- abolish the police, abolish prisons. I mean, I never would have thought there would have been a time where prison abolition is, like, just common common conversation. Like, that's part, that's on the news. You know, like, they're talking about it on the news. Like, people are having conversations yeah. about it in the mainstream. When I was talking about this in 2016, niggas thought I was crazy. I was like, what? You, you, you want to let the murderers out? You know, like, what? You know, but it's like, there was just this heightened consciousness as a result of the pandemic, job loss, unemployment, you know, just poverty, niggas dying. Like, um, it just, I think we said there's a lot of revolutionary potential in yeah. summer 2020, and that's how we got this resurgence of a conversation of Black August, which is rooted in revolutionary potential. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of points I want to touch on, but I think the first thing is like, um, when we talk about like, summer of 2020, um, especially, like, in relationship to, like, Black August, um, without, like, minimizing, like, the experience that George Jackson as an individual went through, mm-hmm. like, I'm definitely, like, almost seeing, like, a small, like, pattern that's, like, mm-hmm. this, like, um, pressure, this pressure chamber that, like, we were culturally put in in 2020, yeah. like, really opened, I guess, opened up, um, our collective consciousness to like yeah. more radical ideas in like a very similar way, um, in a very similar process that George Jackson went through. Yeah. Um, and I'm kind of like connecting this to like, okay, like what does the future look like? <laughs> um, and it's like, depending on the direction that things go in, I mean, like, it doesn't feel like our mainstream politics um, have any intention of easing up like the violent level of capitalism that we're in right now. Um, So considering that, like, the outlook for the future is the same or worse, um, feels like the pressure cooker is just going to kind of increase a little bit. But I feel like there's almost, like, it's, like, almost, like, a good thing. um, And it's almost something to, like, watch for. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, I see, like, this, like, um, like this push versus pull like mm-hmm. effect that happens too where it's like just kind of like based on the way American style capitalism works like it is very very it's very dejecting I guess what I'm trying to say is like I can't blame anyone who chooses to like sit out because of the way that like this system works um, I think there's another direction that that it goes in where okay like it pulls you a little bit closer to striving for a better world but it really like i think it's very very easy to feel hopeless but that's the job of the radical to like to not to not feel that all has been lost 
Yeah. You know, like that's what's so I think that's what's hard about it. That revolutionary potential. That so much of revolutionary like becoming a revolutionary requires discipline. Discipline requires you you that you maintain hope for a better future, right? That you can change something, that something can change as a result of me staying consistent, right? I think we were, and I want to circle back to what you were talking about, the pressure cooker. I think it was so funny. <laughs> like, I was reading uh, the foreword and Soledad Brother before we had this conversation, and Jonathan Jackson, uh, Jonathan Jackson Jr., essentially, George Jackson's nephew, uh, wrote in the foreword that... <laughs> The Blood in My Eye by George Jackson, uh, his political treatises, that could have been written. It was. It's so on point. It's so. It speaks so much to the times that it could have been written at that point in the 1960s, but it could have been written a month ago in 2020. You know what I mean? Nothing has really changed. If anything, that pressure cooker, like you said, has just gotten more and more tight. The lid has just gotten tighter, you know? Um and as a result, I can imagine why people want to lo- would lose hope because it just doesn't feel like there's any way out if the lid has gotten that tight. But I think that diamonds are made. Isn't there, aren't diamonds made when you put coal under pressure? Yeah. Yeah, that's the saying. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. You know, so I think there's a diamond that can get out of us being under this amount of pressure. And that's why a practice like Black August, like tap, I keep saying it, but tapping into that revolutionary potential. Mm-hmm. It requires us to... Think about that lid that's getting real tight as a result of the pressure, but understand that like something great can be made because of the conditions that we're in, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> how are you kind of like practicing black office? Like, have you or are you choosing to? Are there ways that like you've been more intentional? Have you been studying more? Like, what are you what are you up to this month? So this is, like, my first, like, Black August. Um, mm-hmm. I think, like, it took me a few days to, like, really, like, figure out, like, what mm-hmm. was going on. <laughs> I'm sorry. You said figure out what was going on. Yeah, okay. Like, I'm, I'm glad you yeah. glad you found your way. <laughs> so, like, after, like, I kind of understood it and kind of, like, digested it, like, for the sake of being intentional about it, um... I think, like, the biggest change has just been, like, this is a month where, like, I've been exercising more. I've been caring about my body a lot more. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I've been, like, running, um, Mm. trying to eat healthy, trying to eat healthier. You still doing them shakes? Yeah. (laughs) You're so funny. I got one right here. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) What? What kind of container? Sorry. It's a shaker bottle. (laughs) You know what? I'm not even going to ask you no more questions about that. You need like a Hello, what's it called? Um, Hello Fresh. Yeah, yeah. You need a Hello Fresh, okay? <laughs> get you, get you right. I don't know what these shakes, this shake situation is. I'm sorry. But, no, that's that's hilarious. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, my health is the biggest thing, just because it's something where I like I feel like when that's um, when there's kind of like a state of Zen there, it's a lot easier for everything else to kind of be in place. How about you? I have been reading more. Um, I've specifically been reading Audre Lorde, rereading um, Sister Outsider, uh, specifically because Audre Lorde was like one of the first writers, like black feminist writers that, I think I read her, the first time I read Sister Outsider, I, got, I was gifted this book 
um, in high school, like when I was like in 10th grade. So I did not have the knowledge to really appreciate what she was saying in a lot of these essays. And so, you know, sometimes I go back to my favorite ones, of course, Uses of the Erotic. I mean, that is just uh, a pinnacle, fucking amazing essay from her. Um, influence, has influenced my politic to date. Um, but this month, I've just kind of like decided, you know what, I kind of want to reread this and really sink my teeth into every single one of these essays one more time. Um, and it's kind of, it's helped me with my creative practice as like a writer. Um, I've been writing a lot more. Um getting more consistent with like going on my walks um, my hot girl walks you know yeah. <laughs> um, just getting more fresh air and stuff um, yeah but the main thing I've noticed is definitely just getting back into books that were important to me and I know their importance in the large like in the grand scheme of things um, but rereading them for myself to like remind myself of that importance for myself you know Audrey Lord is Audrey Lord is that girl. I'm sorry, she just kind of went off. I'm sorry, pushing that pen. <laughs> so, yeah. For the um, for the benefit of listeners, do you mind um, restating like the names of the texts that yeah. are influencing you? Yeah, right now, um, Sister Outsider by Audrey Lord. That is the collection of um, essays, speeches, poems. Is it poems? I don't think there's poems in there. Um, and then inside of Sister Outsider, there is one text. I feel like, I think everybody, at least once in their life, specific, everyone, especially like female identified people and women, um, femme presenting people, honestly, everybody, anybody with a pulse needs to read Uses of the Erotic. I just think there is pleasure. My pleasure politic is very important to me. And that specific text has informed me in so many ways um and just rereading i think i read it like three times <laughs> three times like the past week but maybe more than 15 times in my life i've read that text uh and it's a pretty easy read but there's just so much to extract out of it um and it's just such a beautiful text. i don't even have the language that you know when you read a good writer and you're like, I just, I couldn't have said it better myself. You know, I couldn't have said it better. Um, that's how I feel when I read Audrey Lorde. So that's what I'm up to. Haven't been too, dipping too much in that training. When you said you want to run, I don't run. No, you exercise in your brain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's important too. Yeah. yeah. One of the things um, I was dwelling on a little bit as well was... Um, this, like, idea of, like, the cultural battle that we're in as well. Mm. Um, and this idea where it's like, okay, like, it's the mainstream. Um, in the mainstream, like, Black August isn't necessarily, like, Black August hasn't landed there yet. But, like, um, in the margins of the mainstream, yeah. it's, like, okay, like, it's it's getting circulated a bit. Yeah. Um, I guess it's, like, in your opinion, like, what is the goal? Like, where, mm. where... In what space are we supposed to win the cultural battle? Like, are we are we aiming for the mainstream? Are we aiming for like this margin of the mainstream mm-hmm. that it seems like um, we're getting closer to, mm-hmm. or is like is there like a third option where it's like we stay in like our insulated bubbles and we allow people to find us? Like, mm. what what is the goal here? I mean, the goal is revolution. The goal the goal is liberation. The goal is 
the freedom of all black people across the world. Um, and so with that, I'm not saying that it hits the mainstream, because I feel like the mainstream, that, that term, it just feels, it feels co-optive. It feels like, if when I, when I think of mainstream, I think of CNN. I think of MSNBC, and that's not the goal, right? That's white liberalism. That's reformism, right? We want revolution. So if it hits them, when I say, when I'm thinking about the goal, I think it needs to hit the people that it needs to hit. I think it needs to hit everyone. I think it needs to hit, hit all oppressed people. Um, and really quick, when you say um, when it hits the mainstream, it feels co-opted. Mm-hmm. Um, can you elaborate on just what that means? Yeah, I mean, reformism. I think about how, when I say abolish the police, a leftist, a liberal, a reformist, whatever term you want to use for him, is going to be like, well, I just think the police needs to be reformed. And it's like, no. You know what I mean? That's not what I said. Yeah. I said I want the police gone. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're saying, well, I just think we should change him, give him a higher salary. No. You know what yeah. I mean? That's not what I want. And when I think of Black August hitting the mainstream, what Black August is, it is inherently about, again, tapping into that revolutionary potential, studying, understanding the history of Black revolutionary thinkers. If that becomes co-opted, now we have movements, and this is going to sound really shady, but now we then we'll have movements like Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Hey, don't, you know, don't oh. shoot the messenger, right? Yeah. But <laughs> now we have, like, these big organizations that are raising all this money, but we don't know where the money is going. Nothing, the conditions of Black folk have not changed. You know what I mean? Um, The point is to get it to everyone so that everyone has the knowledge, the space, the freedom to think bigger about their future, Mm -hmm. to think more critically about the world they're in, the oppression they're experiencing. When you're going to work nine to five all day every day you don't have time to think about that shit you got to worry about what the fuck i'm gonna put on the on the grill you're not worried about revolution you're not worried about my oppression you're not worried about the fact that your boss is exploiting you you're like i gotta make sure my kids eat i gotta make sure this bill's paid my car notes paid for us i'm gonna take my car you know what i mean and so getting that this power this reminder to study to be intentional, to look back at the, the legacy of George Jackson, Asada Shakur, whoever, right, whatever revolutionary thinker you want to look up to, getting that to the masses is going to get them out of that, that brainwash of nine to five survival. It's going to put them in the mode where they can think about, whoa, I don't want to just survive. I want to thrive. I want to live a life where I feel free, where I'm comfortable, right, where racism where the threat of violence, state-sanctioned violence is not looming over me. I mean, we talked about before this on the way here, right? The fact that niggas is just shooting niggas, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's just kind of crazy. Um, but, like, the threat of violence is so is not so pervasive in our communities. Um, that's, when we get it to the masses, that's the goal. That's why we want it to the masses. We don't want it on CNN. We don't want Anderson Cooper reporting on everybody celebrating Black August. No, that's what happened with Juneteenth yeah. as well. Because niggas celebrating Juneteenth and niggas don't know what Juneteenth is. We got Africans, African, like fresh off the boat, Africans talking about send me money for Juneteenth. Baby, no, that's not how it works. You don't, that's not how it works. <laughs> and I feel like it's, like it's a good place to bring up is how like one of like the, the key modes of white supremacy is how like um, it removes like the sacredness um, yeah. from things that black people 
um, own. Literally, like the way that we're talking about it, it's like once it hits the mainstream and it has like, um, it's in a space where literally what's purpose it can kind of get it, get its hands around it. It like sucks the life out of it. Exactly. It's kind of like, yeah, come here. His hands and around puts, his neck. Puts like a little costume over it. And that's <laughs> different from what it previously was. Yeah. It's very invasive. Yeah. And it does nothing to advance the goal. Yeah. You know, it completely eradicates the goal at that point. Because Juneteenth, like, Juneteenth's a national holiday. Now what? You get a day off. Okay. That's good. Yeah. I'll be getting paid on your day off. But now what? Yeah. You know, let's think bigger. They give us breadcrumbs and we don't know that we deserve the whole loaf. Mm-hmm. You know? Scary to think about because it's like, I guess like the question coming into my mind now is like, how do we control it? Like, how do we control Gatekeeping. Like, gatekeeping. Gatekeeping. <laughs> gatekeeping is a good thing. <laughs> gatekeeping is a good thing. Gatekeeping for black folk is a good thing, I feel like. Okay. Can you tell me more? I don't know. If I'm... <laughs> If I'm talking about Black August and you as a white man are coming into the space talking about some. (sighs) The point of Black August, so much of it is, again, honoring the legacy of political prisoners, Black freedom fighters, hence Black August, right? If you as a white person and you as a white and you could be the most well-intentioned liberal on earth. I mean, you could have you could have told me you voted for Obama twice and you thought you was really doing something with your life, right? Very well-intentioned. Even though, you know, not really going about it in the best way. Mm-hmm. If they tell me, "Hey, I want to celebrate Black August." I'm going to I'm going to say no. No, thank you. I'm going to say you can go study on your own. But I think there's this power in saying I'm going to celebrate Black August or practice Black August because Black August is a communal thing, yeah. right? I, th- I think it's so important that the first Black August were practiced where they would fast from sunup to sundown and then they would have a feast at the end of the month together, right? I'm not feasting with you, my white guy. Like, you know what I mean? I'm not, that's not you, not in my community, baby. I'm sorry, it's ain't for you. Um, but if you want to ramp up your revolutionary potential so that you can be a great ally and a great accomplice to the liberation of, of all black people, mm-hmm. you do that. But not while we having a feast. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Not while I'm over here. You know what I mean? I don't know if that makes sense. But... No, absolutely. <laughs> there need to be different spaces um, mm-hmm. to reach people um, in terms of where they are and who they are. In yeah. terms of who they are and where they're at, um, in different ways, mm-hmm. um, absolutely makes sense. Have you thought about how, um, or maybe not necessarily? Have you thought, but have you seen any ways that um, white ally spaces or non-black ally spaces? How do those spaces effectively work, and how are those spaces? Um, I don't want to say monitored and I don't want to use any term that feels like policing, Mm -hmm. but how are those spaces held accountable for the work that they're doing or that they're trying to do? I think like what comes to mind when you ask that is I think about the Brown Berets. Have you heard of them? No. Brown Berets, similar. I don't want to, and I don't have too much information on them, but the very little information I have on them, they are, I want to say, originated and... Whoever's listening to this, fact check the fuck out of me. 
because um, I don't want to spread false information. But I believe they originated um, in Texas. <laughs> yeah, let's just look it up while we talking so I can make sure. Black Brown Beret movement. Yes. Bro, see, I wanted to say Chicano, but I was like, I don't want to fuck it up. Yeah, so it is essentially a coalition of like Chicano, essentially Latin American, uh, Latin American people that form a coalition, uh, essentially fighting for liberation. Uh, <laughs> uh, and similar aspects, similar tenets of um, anti-capitalist ideology, uh, anti-imperialist, decolonial thought, all of the things that are very consistent around, um, oh yeah, also like workers' union, labor, laborers' rights, all these things. Um, yeah, all these things. I didn't know you were, I didn't know you were recording this question. All these things. <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, so brown boys, I think of them because they are non-black, but their mission and their goal is oriented in a way that it addresses the struggles of all marginalized people. Does that make sense? Um, and I want to get more information about the brown berets because I think it's like it's worth knowing. Um, and then I even think about Che Guevara, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, anti-capitalist, you know, communist, like. <laughs> anti-imperialist, decolonial thinkers. Um, yeah. Would you consider yourself a revolutionary? Yes. Because I want a revolution uh, mm-hmm. across the world. Do you want a revolution? What? I said, do you want a... I'm sorry. No, what's the song? Is that the song? Is that how it I goes? don't know the song. What's you the, don't know the song? What's the name of it? I don't know the name of it. Uh, <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Because okay. I was like, dang, I thought you get the name of it. <laughs> um, yeah. But do you want a revolution? Woo, woo. I said, do you want a revolution? Woo. Okay, yeah. We'll put the song in here, so maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll probably That's throw it. a song in. <laughs> we'll throw the song in, so I'm not sounding crazy. <laughs> I think um, you used the word, like, imagination earlier um, to describe, like, the way that, like, um, these historical figures were able to impact, um, were able to make the impact that they made because, like, they were able to imagine like um, a world beyond what was around them. Yeah. And I think that is like, again, like just coming back to the idea of hope. That's something that's like much easier said than done. Um, and I feel like it's something that has to be practiced and kind of like reinforced. Um, yeah, and I can say that, like, I think that once, yeah, I feel like once somebody gets to a point where it's like they're able to imagine a world that's better and they're actively able to, like, think of creative, like, solutions to what's yeah. going on, I think, like, at that point you can call yourself a revolutionary. I don't think that it's mm-hmm. something that has to be exclusive. I don't think it's something that has to be mm-hmm. too limited. I think truly it's like, yeah, if you're trying to create a revolutionary change. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's an appropriate way to use. Would yeah. you agree? How would you? Yeah, I definitely agree. I think so much of a revolutionary mindset is, an under, is radicalism, right? So understanding that what's working now is not working, and in order for something that works to be, in order for something to work, you know, we have to get rid of what we have now. Right, and that could be very disorienting for a lot of people sometimes, mm-hmm. but that's where the imagination comes in because 
if I say we need to tear it all down and I don't give you an idea of what to build, you know, people are like, well, what then, you know, anarchy? And it's like, I'm not opposed to anarchy. <laughs> I'm sorry, my my political beliefs are kind of wild, but I'm not opposed to anarchy, <laughs> to black anarchy. But um, I think just having, giving people the opportunity to say, okay, I don't want police, I don't want presence, well, what do you want? I don't know yet, but I want to I want to dream about it with you. Exactly. I want the space to think about it with you, you know, because I don't have the answers. And I think it's so decolonial for us to lean into the fact that we don't have the answers, even if we Absolutely. are, like, saying, even if we are saying, I, I, I imagine a new future, or I want a revolutionary change, or I want a radical change to what's happening around me. It is so powerful for us to say that I don't know what it looks like yet, but I know that I want it. And I know that I want I want your help to dream it up with me, to create it with me, because I'm this is not just my future, but it's all of our future. Absolutely. So I would definitely agree. It's being a revolutionary is so much just so much just about wanting, like knowing that what the fuck isn't working. Yeah. Um isn't working. And I think but also I wanna add I think there's an aspect of of discipline that goes into it. You know, because it is, it's a practice. It's really a practice. Like having a mindset where this is the, like revolutionaries are dedicated to the revolution. You know what I mean? Like dedicated to the change. It takes practice. It takes study. It takes really immersing yourself in the knowledge needed to be able to even imagine a new world. Mm -hmm. And that requires discipline, right? I think about the fact that we talked about this earlier, but how the Black Panther Party, a lot of the leaders that started the Black Panther Party were college-educated individuals, you know, and the, the academy is a place notorious for discipline, right? Studying, learning about these political movements, that's discipline. And that is why they had, a lot of them had the knowledge to be able to go back into the communities and say, hey, like, y'all want to y'all wanna come get armed with me and dream up a new way of, like, policing the police, you know? Um so much of it is discipline, I want to say. And I think that's that's a key component that if you want to identify as a revolutionary, you have to be able, you have to be willing to implement in your life as well. Yeah, it's absolutely important. I'm glad that you brought that up. Would you like to talk about um, what it was like, what the experience was like for you mm -hmm. um, when you realized that you were a revolutionary? Mm. Oh. You don't have to. You know, yeah. <laughs> I can talk about it. Um, but I think, like, the reason I got so mm about it in a second, because I was like, dang, like, I'm almost where we just had a whole conversation about, like, what does it mean to be a revolutionary? Um, but it's like, I almost feel, I feel like I am in my practice and what I want for the world is these are revolutionary things that I desire. But it almost feels... I almost feel wrong for identifying with it because, because so much of the revolutionary identity that we all understand is so muddled with incarceration, political imprisonment, imprisonment, excuse me, um, state-sanctioned killings. You know, I don't think, who is to say, you know, we're all being surveilled on the interwebs, on the internet, everything. So who's to say... FBI or whatever don't have a file on me because I'd be saying some radical ass shit on Twitter sometimes. Mm -hmm. 
but part of me doesn't even want to identify feels like it's wrong for me to even identify as a revolutionary because so much of that identity is is rooted in the fact that the United States like you are the enemy of the United States essentially because the United States is the imperialist capitalist country of the world right so I don't think I realized I was a revolutionary until somebody called me a revolutionary or said that, yeah, you, you're a revolutionary. Or, like, something along the lines of that. I think a friend of mine said that, and I was like, oh, I guess, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think also what strays me away from calling myself a revolutionary is I don't think I'm political. <laughs> I don't well, think do you, I'm, what does that mean? I, don't th- I mean, like, I don't think I'm a, I don't think I'm a political person. Um, when I talk about this stuff, when I talk about black liberation, when I talk about all these, you know, heady ass things, um, it doesn't feel political. It doesn't feel like I'm talking politics because I don't like politics. You know, I study politics and I don't like that shit. Um, it feels very personal. Um, and then I think about the, the, the quote from Audre Lorde, the personal is always political. So it's like, oh, maybe it is political if it's personal, but it doesn't feel, revolutionaries feel so po- political. They feel like they have an agenda. They feel, it feels very, I don't know how else to describe, but it just feels very political. It feels very strategic. Strategic, right? I don't think I'm strategic. I think I'm, I think I'm speaking from, from love. <laughs> um, and though love is so important in, the strategic planning of, you know, revolutionary political thought. Uh, my personal politic has just developed to be more so reminiscent of my experiences as a black woman, as a queer black woman, as first gen African immigrant. Speaking to, it's just become so. I don't know. Like I think my politics has just become. It's just so personal i all this to say that i don't i've been called a revolutionary i don't think i don't remember a time where i felt revolutionary i just knew that like shit gotta change and shit gotta change because i'm not comfortable with it you know and i know my brothers and sisters and my siblings they're not comfortable with it either you know and i'm oh, sorry Go no <laughs> When you were mentioning um, the idea of like uh, being revolutionary, or like I guess the idea of what it means to be revolutionary, what it means to be defined as revolutionary, um, having being political as part of it, like how does that, where does that come from? Like what is the like, the background um, that provides that definition for you? Like the political aspect of it, mm-hmm. I think. I think about how the black revolutionaries that we're talking about today, George Jackson, Mumia Abdul-Jamal, Angela Davis, The Move Nine, Asada Shakur, you know, uh, all these people were once political prisoners, right? Imprisoned because of their quote unquote political beliefs, 
Yeah, in prison because of their political beliefs. And that just became so much associated with their identity. Um, I think even having, like, even with George Jackson, like, just having an understanding of, like, Marx, Lenin, Mao, it's like, these are political philosophers, right? And a lot of times, like, when people are radicalized, they're not interacting with political philosophers. They're not reading the work of political philosophers. Oftentimes, they're just living their lives. But I think... I don't know, I feel that the strategic aspect of it, the the fact that they were enemies of the state as a result of their quote unquote political beliefs. I feel I don't know if I'm even answering this question like in the way that you you'd imagine, no, but yes. <laughs> um I think these are just when I think of like revolutionaries, I just think of politics. I just think of I okay, here we go. I think the United States is very political, very polit- obviously political. Like, the United States has a politic. They have a political, they have political system, so on and so forth. Uh, there are strategic movements from the left, center, right, whatever. Um, and like I said, they're strategic and they have an agenda, so on and so forth. Usually that agenda is rooted in capitalist motives, capitalist gain. But on the latter, if you're trying to undo those political mo- those poli- that political agenda, it comes off as you being political as well because you're combating another political agenda. Does that make sense? I hope I'm making sense. I'm like reaching for straws right yeah, now. No, it does. I'm like <laughs> it does make sense. Um, so when I say I want ra- like radical change, and I say I want free education for everyone. I want, you know, free, free food for everybody. I think we should have showers and libraries. Yeah. That's a political ass statement because it requires me going against an already established political system, policies, legislature, so on and so forth. Uh, it becomes political, even though it is so personal. It is so like, yeah. it's just a community thing. Like I think houseless, houseless people should be able to take a shower in the library. You know what I mean? But that becomes political because of the things that are required to make that movement happen. And that's where the strategy and all of that comes in. And that's where the revolutionaries get lost, in my opinion. Uh, Their work gets lost in the political part of it. You know, like, they become associated as political people. Is this making sense? Um... (laughs) I'm not going to lie, that last section of it lost okay. me a little bit, where okay. you mentioned that that's where the revolutionaries get lost in the political aspect of it. Not lost, per se. That's not the right language I wanted to use. But I think that's where I... I think that's where I... That's where I, that's where I, that's where I associate them in the when I say that they're political. Okay. Like, they get swamped in that whole system of, we want change... And change requires some type of political addendum or whatever. So now this is a political change. You know? It requires strategy. It requires uh, mm. policy advocacy or whatever, however oh, yeah. you want to go about it. Uh, that ties the loop. Yeah. That's what you're saying. Mm-hmm. As you were mentioning it, I was still thinking a little bit about how, like, um, about the quote that you mentioned about how, like, you said that's an um, that's an Audre Lorde quote about how the person is inherently the, political. Yeah, the personal is always po- political. Yeah, by the Combahee River, River Collective statement. 
which is a coalition of black feminist thinkers. Something I think about sometimes is like this idea of like um, being a revolutionary or being a radical um, and how it relates to like this kind of like commodification of identity um, mm-hmm. that we experience um, living in the age that we're in. And I don't know if this is something that other generations have experienced. I don't know how true to the human experience this type of thing is. Mm-hmm. But when you mentioned that, like, you didn't call yourself a revolutionary, somebody else called you a revolutionary, it's like mm-hmm. that almost feels more appropriate because I feel like when you assign yourself like a label to something, it's like somebody else can like also has that creates the option that somebody else can decide not to attach that label to himself. And I feel like creating like this label um, of like revolutionary and creating like this box of like this identity that like you get to fit inside of it if you choose to mm. becomes very like dangerous um, to this movement. Like it becomes like um, comes exclusive um, and it it makes these things that are very possible for many people to engage to engage in even if not everything um, just like it literally like it feels like it it makes the act of imagining a different future mm-hmm. like exclusive to those who are within the identity yes. of a radical or a revolutionary. Um, and that slows down progress. Yeah. Um, so it's like, I'm almost like, as we're like talking through it now, and I'm thinking out loud a bit, it's like, I'm like, okay, like I'm even hesitant a little bit to like call myself. Um, I'm more hesitant than I was like a couple minutes ago to call myself a revolutionary <laughs> um, or radical or anything because it's like, no, like we should all be revolutionaries and radicals. Like, I think the same, like, approach to, like, artistry. Like, I feel like mm-hmm. the word art is such, like, a vague word. And it's, mm-hmm. like, it really can be applied to literally everything. Like, everything anybody does is can be interpreted as an art form. So it's, yeah. like, I know, like, people have said, yeah, everyone is an artist. And I don't think that's an inaccurate thing to say at all. I yeah. think everyone is an artist. But I don't think everybody's a revolutionary. I think it's fair to say that everyone has revolutionary potential. Yeah, but I think it has to be, it like really, I think the conditions for every person to be unlocked, like that revolutionary potential to be unlocked in each individual can be different. It's, it'll be a little different for me to wake up Anderson Cooper and yeah. tell him, hey, yo, you know, yeah. hey, this shit ain't working. It's going to yeah. be, be different telling him to arm up yeah. than telling you to arm up, mm-hmm. you know, or... For me, talking to a, a cop, a career cop, even though I don't think that's a real career, to tap into this revolutionary potential, it's going to be a lot more, a lot more nuanced than yeah. the situation is going to be a little more different for him to really be like, shit's got to change, rather yeah. than I speak to a single mother um, that immigrated to this country and yeah. has seen the rut of like true suffering, right? She already... She already radicalized. She just needs the language. Yeah. You know what I mean? She just needs the language for it. So. But there, it feels like there are a lot of those people. It feels mm-hmm. like there are a lot of people who are like 
the nuance is skewed towards radicalism rather than mm-hmm. away from it. Um, how important, because when you talk about like the language, it's like someone in that situation, it's like having the language, um, and tell me if this isn't what you're saying, but it okay. seems like what I'm, what I'm hearing a little bit is that having the language is kind of what makes the difference or flips that switch. Um, do you I, I don't, yeah. Part of it, yeah and no. I I kind of want to even... Because most of it is like... Most of it is... I don't think it's about having the language, right? I think it's about really having that experience. Right? Like, the language I use to describe exploitation of a minimum wage worker, right? is going to be a little bit more advanced than someone who is not educated. And revolution is specifically for the person that's not educated because they're more likely to be experiencing this exploitation, right? They may not say... When we say educated, do we mean college educated? College educated, whatever. You know, I'm talking about... I'm illiterate. I'm talking like... There are people that are illiterate in the United States that have not read a book, that that cannot read, but understand the condition of their lives, right? And they can tell you shit's fucked up. I don't have a job. I ain't making money. You know, niggas, I've been in prison this amount of time, this amount of time. You know, like, they can tell you what's going on in their life. And you can see this, us, me, with whatever knowledge I have, my college degree, whatever, I can say, oh, like, this kind of connects to these structures and those systems of oppression. But that doesn't really do anything. (laughs) That doesn't really do much. It just kind of, like, gives validity to what he was saying when it doesn't really need validity because it's his lived experience, point blank, period. Does that make sense? I think there's some utility um, in being able to articulate the I'm conditions. Worried, I'm worried about that because of ta- classism. Mm-hmm. You know, like, a lot of people are organizers. Like, I saw this a lot in 2020 everyone's like read 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 and it's like and what if i can't read yeah and so what if i say like are you telling me that when the revolution comes that you're gonna leave me behind because i ain't read marx because i ain't read lenin because i can't tell you i can't describe to you what the bourgeoisie is you ask a poor person what the bourgeoisie is or what the proletariat is, they don't gonna know what the fuck you're talking about. But that don't mean they're not the proletariat. Mm-hmm. That don't mean they're not the lower class. You know what I mean? Like the theory, the lived experience informs the theory. The theory doesn't inform the lived experience. We can do without the theory. We can do without the books. The books just make it more palpable. It make it so it makes it so that those who are not living that lived experience can understand it. Mm-hmm. It gives it more meaning, more depth. But the lived experience is really where the juice is at. Talk to anybody in a community that that's that's impoverished. They will say they will say everything that you know Cedric Robinson said on racial capitalism. Maybe Cedric said it real, you know, like real fancy with the language, but they say the same thing. They, people, people that are oppressed oftentimes know they're oppressed. They may not tell it to you in big fancy words, but they'll tell you, yeah, I'm not making as much money as I should. Yeah. Or I want to make more money. 
I want to be able to buy a house. I've been living, I've been renting this apartment in Section 8 housing for years. I don't own a car. There's no good grocery stores near my house. I want to be able to feed my kids good things. My kids are getting sick. There's lead in the water. They can tell you that. But now what if the books can say housing discrimination. They can say exploitation, environmental, environmental racism. It gives us the language, like the bigger language. Which is why it's important for those that, I think if you have the access to the books, I think you should read them. There's no harm in getting the, and knowing the intricacies of, of the way these structures are oppressing you. Yeah. But you not reading them, it's not you, it's you not, it doesn't mean that you're not tapping into your revolutionary potential. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, just getting back to really what's at the core of Black August. Like, we know the main point is to study, to train, to understand the legacy, understand the history behind it. Um, so that you can tap into this revolutionary potential. Um, but I also like want to find a way to connect Black August, specifically as a month, to a larger Black internationalist, pan-Africanist vision. I think... I think George Jackson did a really good job of that, right? And I think that's why it's so important that... <laughs> I mean, it makes sense why he's like, you know, the reason why we celebrate George Jackson, like um, Black August, but specifically in his book, um, Soledad, rather, uh, the collection of his prison letters, uh, there was one section in the foreword by his nephew. Um, there's an excerpt of a letter that he wrote that I just think really, really touches beautifully on the importance of political education, the importance of reading, of understanding, of having the language to name the structures, and then attaching it to not only the experiences of black folk domestically, but to a larger vision or a larger goal of collective black liberation for all black people across the world, across that, like diaspora, essentially. Um, I want to read that quote, if you recall that. Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, it's a bit long, it's a bit wordy, so I'll take my time reading it. But <laughs> um, it starts as international capitalism cannot be destroyed without the extremes of struggle. The entire colonial world is watching the blacks inside the U.S., wondering and waiting for us to come to our senses. Their problems and struggles with the American monster are much more difficult than they would be if we actively aided them. We are on the inside. We are the only ones besides the very small white minority left who can get at the monster's heart without subjecting the world to nuclear fire. We have a momentous historical role to act out if we will. The whole world for all time in the future will love us and remember us as the righteous people who made it possible for the world to live on. If we fail through fear and lack of aggressive imagination, then the slaves of the future will curse us as we sometimes curse those of yesterday. I don't want to die and leave a few sad songs and a hump in the ground as my only monument. I want to leave a world that is liberated from trash, pollution, racism, nation states, nation state wars, and armies, 
from pomp, bigotry, parochialism, a thousand different brands of untruth, and licentious, usurious economics. I mean, first of all, a writer. <laughs> George Jackson was a writer, um, obviously. But I think what he's getting at here is black people in America have a very specific type of struggle and oppression that is so con- so intricately and delicately connected to the source of all international oppression that if black people were to just make movements together that they're the only ones that can get at the monster's heart so intimately, so closely, and that that would in turn spark a pan-Africanist, a black internationalist liberation. I think specifically about the summer 2020 you spoke directly about, um, a bit about earlier, and how following summer 2020, we saw uprisings in Ethiopia. We saw uprise. We saw the NSARS uprisings that really popped off in Nigeria, and that was so con- so intricately connected with the similar demands of abolishing the police. It was NSARS and the police force in Nigeria. SARS is a police force in Nigeria, the Special Anti Robbery Squad. You know, George Jackson. This is written 1970. It could have very well been written yesterday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Definitely. and it just really. If we're thinking about revolution for all black people across the world, I mean, considering that you and I are both first-gen African immigrants, I mean, you were born in Nigeria, actually. Um, considering that even us, like, we're much more connect, much more intimately connected to that monster of white supremacy, of imperialism, of capitalism than say our family back home (laughs) in West Africa, you know? So what does it look like for us to really be intentional about the opportunity that we have to change something in America um, so that it can reverberate? Is that the word? Reverberate. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Across the world, essentially across the diaspora specifically. Just to make sure I really get your question, you're asking, what does it mean for us um, to be really intentional, in, really intentional about how we how we engage with the monster, how we resist the monster? What's yeah, the like since we're so close to it, yeah. Yeah. Like, what would that look like for us? I mean, Black August is a way, but what does that look like? And what would it look like for, say, a listener that happens to be, I mean, most likely they're in America? I feel like it comes back to um, this power of like imagination that we've mm-hmm. been bringing up. Um, that's the first thing that I think of is, in addition to like you said, like making sure that yeah, like study. Um, if you have the ability to read, um, if you have like the capacity to engage in an academic sense, then do that. Mm-hmm. Um, train, take care of yourself. Um, I think like there's like a like a certain like level of like fear that comes with like trying to imagine and I think resisting like that fear mm. um is where 
is where you kind of get into exciting territory because yeah. you literally have to choose to create like a new reality for yourself. Yeah. Um, and I think the two of us are actively doing that. I think like in the way that we're doing it right now, um, yeah. I don't think we're doing a bad job. <laughs> um, we can always do a better job. Absolutely. But I'm thinking about like the general amount of people who I don't even want to say don't see it, but don't, don't, I guess haven't been exposed to the, to the amount of power that comes with just imagining something better. Mm. Um, yeah. Because there is so much power, I think, in just yeah. being able to think about it. Um, I guess like in terms of actionable things that we can do as well because at the same time yeah we absolutely can do better um i'm almost thinking about like is there value in being more abrasive like literally (laughs) (laughs) more abrasive yeah like i'm thinking about what ways (laughs) in terms of how we like resist like white supremacy and how we resist imperialism um, I think making our movie nights black only. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is definitely a way. Yeah. I think just being like, yeah, this is a black only live stream, baby. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm thinking too about just like the way that we spend our money, which is incredibly difficult, but it's yeah. like even the smallest ways that we can do that contributes. Um, I'm thinking about just kind of like the conversations that we're having with people just being like not being afraid to like scare people with the things that we're thinking about like yeah. i know you were joking before that it's like um you're saying like yeah like my politics are like uh what'd you say <laughs> what did i say were, like they were like um they're kind of extreme or something oh yeah, yeah. Nah, white supremacy is very extreme white supremacy <laughs> is an extreme thing so i'm allowed yeah, to be extreme <laughs> exactly so it's like i think just like Letting go into the unknown, I think, is a very, very powerful thing that we can do. Yeah. I look forward to potentially becoming more abrasive. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think that, I think some key points, being even more intentional about how we spend our money, um, I think gatekeeping... <laughs> gatekeeping kind of and like that's such a funny term now but I think like for real like having spaces that are just for black folk because that revolutionary potential has the ability to you know be fostered in those spaces you know where we're pushing each other all because we love each other and we want collective freedom for all of us so that was all I have for you yeah no awesome I think I think a lot of value was shared here yeah um i look forward to next black august i feel like maybe i might have like a different yeah. like i feel like maybe maybe our political awareness will be a little more high end or definitely diff- like i think <laughs> and i think i want to end on this i think my biggest fear with like continuing with political education whatever is learning about all of this revolutionary uh work um and just this being a pan-african research platform is gain more information and just becoming more and more and more radicalized and in turn 
becoming more and more militarized because that's usually I feel like that's what I've seen happen historically I'm interested in seeing if that's going to happen like for the collective like for the collective or the masses like yeah. if people become more and more radicalized like are they more likely to become like truly revolutionary in the sense of like militarized or is this going to be a conversation of I don't know just sharing thoughts yeah. And dreaming and thinking together. I don't know. We'll see, we'll see how it takes shape. is a wrap for this episode um thank you again once more so much for tuning in if you would like to stay connected with us um the best way to do so is by following us on instagram at found in translation dmv um once more found in translation is a cultural platform um beyond just a podcast so we're dedicated to the mission of exploring the multidimensionality of people from the African diaspora um, all around the world. In addition to our podcast, we also host a monthly movie night. So if you are in the D.C., Maryland, and Virginia area, definitely feel free to tap in with us. Um, those events are always held at the end of the month, um, and we like to travel around. So definitely check out our Instagram or um, subscribe to our email list for more information. Thanks again and have a great day. Bye.